<clears throat> Father, it is um, it's good to be gathered together with your people. It's good to be having our eyes set upon you, reminded of your redeeming work that you have so powerfully worked in our lives, and it's good to be reminded of the fact that you are the God of all of creation over all the world, and you are gathering for yourself a people from every tribe, tongue, and language, and all of us, God, with one heart, want to sing unto you and to, to give you the praise and the glory that you so deserve, for you are blessed forever. You are high and lifted up above all things, and it's a great privilege that we have to be able to see that and to acknowledge that and to be able to worship you in the splendor of holiness. And so we pray, Father, today that you would help us put our hearts and our minds solely upon you and seek to, to learn from your word as we humble ourselves before it today and that you might use this time, Father, to glorify your great name and to grow us and shape us and help us to desire things of you, things of the kingdom, things that are eternal, as you have done this incredibly wonderful saving work within us. So we thank you for today and for this time. We look to you now and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is good to be back. It's good to not have to like stop halfway through every sentence so that what you say can be translated and then you can actually finish one coherent thought all the way through. Um, it's good to be back and worshiping together. It's good to be able to, I was thinking as we were singing, you know, it's good to hear a song in your language, to hear a prayer in your language, and to be able to affirm what is being said and what is being prayed and sung, all of that stuff are just things I think that we, we take for granted so often. And it's something that um, I was reminded of on this past trip that we were on. And it's, so it's good and sweet just in those little things to be able to be reminded of the blessings that we have. It's good to be back together with all of you. It's good just to be um, with the Lord's people. But good just to be home, home physically, home spiritually, just home in all the different ways that this is home. So, um, but me and Sam, we really did have a wonderful trip. We're looking forward to being able to share as much as we can with you this coming Wednesday night, and so hopefully everybody can make that, and we can just continue to rejoice in what it is that the Lord has been doing. Um, today we want to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 is what we're going to look at in particular. And, you know, there were some things that I, were, that I was struck by on our trip over there. We had the privilege of being in Ethiopia while they, ha while they celebrate um, the baptism of Jesus Christ. So in the Orthodox Church, which is very prominent in Ethiopia, um, they celebrate the baptism of Christ by John the Baptist. And it is, Kibru, our, our friend over there, was saying that it's the most celebrated holiday over there. More than Easter, more than Christmas, is Jesus' baptism. And so you can imagine in a city that even when we're on the rooftop of our hotel, it spreads as far as the eye can see. There, the low estimate is that it's six million people in this one city, and they close the whole city down. All streets are closed because 
all of the Orthodox churches in the area bring their little replica of the Ark of the Covenant down into the middle of the city. And there are parades, there are singing, and this goes on for three days. So I'm sitting there. I'm, Wednesday night, I'm in the hotel. Wednesday is the first day of this celebration. I know there's two more days coming. And we've just been ministering to our brothers and sisters in Christ, our Christian brothers on how to use the Word of God and the sufficiency of the Word, the authority of the Word, to be able to counsel and minister to one another, how to train pastors to use God's Word to shepherd their people. And then in conjunction with that, we have this Orthodox holiday that's going on and the singing and but you just know that none of them have none of the people in this orthodox church have their hope in Christ and yet they're gathering together as this huge people group for this massive celebration that's going on this day and the next two days and then later on that evening you can hear the Muslim call to prayer and I'm just sitting there thinking about all of these this all of these things that are going on in the midst of this one place at one time. You have these, these two beliefs that have no hope in Christ, that millions of people are partaking of, that lead to nothing and destruction. You have this group of brother, our brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord and they want to be equipped to use the Word of God to shepherd and minister to their people. And it just reminds me of the fact that... Um, only salvation and hope can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have this incredible hope, this incredible faith. It's all done by the miraculous and sovereign, gracious working of God in our lives to open up my, our eyes. I mean, if it had not been for the grace of God working in my life, perhaps I would be responding to that call of prayer. Perhaps I would be um, in a church that was worshiping the saints and had no hope in Christ. It's part from the grace of God working in my life. I am where I am. I have the regenerated heart that I have. I have the desire to, to glorify God and to go on these missions trips. And, and it's really all his working. And so I'm reminded of that. And I'm reminded about the fact that I'm starting to ask myself the question and think through, you know, what is, what is real true spirituality? What does it really mean to, for me as a Christian to live a life of faith in a way that really honors the Lord. And how much of my Christianity is tainted by what we see and experience here in America versus that which is truly biblical. And I think these things are good for us to think through. I think a lot of what it is that we think about Christianity is informed to a very great degree by the culture that we live in. And you have, we have to stop and ask ourselves, is, is culture and society defining what true Christianity is? Or do I get that really from what the scriptures say and the word of God? And so in, in thinking through those things, I'm led to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, because here Paul makes some definitive statements about how he is confident and sure that the believers in Thessalonica have truly been converted, and he's firm in his, in his, he's firm in his confidence 
of their faith in Christ because what he sees from them and how the word of God came to them. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 2, and we're going to read through verse 5 together, but we want to just take a special look at verses 4 and 5 in particular today. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I want us again just to focus this morning on verses 4 and 5 and see what it is that Paul is encouraging the believers in Thessalonica to do and to consider as he looks upon their life and how he can be confident of their faith in Christ. One of the things that I thought of as I was reading through this passage was you think about the way that Paul is describing how the Word of God has come to them and the effect that the preaching of the Word has had upon their lives. And if you read through and you go back and look through Acts 17, that's the, the, the story, if you will, of the event of Paul coming to Thessalonica, preaching the gospel, has a, how it has an effect upon those, some of those who are listening, those whom God has ordained for life. It opens up their eyes. They hear the word of the gospel. They hear Jesus Christ preach. God opens up their eyes to see and to understand and to acknowledge as him being the source of salvation, as Acts 17 tells us, that Paul goes into the synagogue and he is reasoning with them and proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. He's calling them to understand that this man, this Jesus from Nazareth, is the source and hope of salvation, and it's him and him alone. And some of them, upon hearing this gospel, they respond, and they want to continue to hear Paul preach the gospel to them. But some do not accept the word of the gospel. And because of that, they create an uproar in the town. They drive Paul out of the city, and that's when he goes into Berea, and the Bereans are more excellent than those who are in Thessalonica, and they examine the scriptures daily to see if what Paul is preaching is actually the truth. But then he writes this letter to the Thessalonians after he's already left, and he's recalling the reception that he had among them, and he's recalling how he saw them respond to the truth of the gospel. And it reminds me of what it was that took place in Genesis 3 when mankind entered into sin and falling into the temptation and the impact that that had upon mankind. Genesis chapter 3, you guys are familiar with it. God has created everything. It's good. He creates mankind. It's very good. And Genesis 3, the fall, Satan enters into the scene. He questions God's goodness. He tempts Adam and Eve. They fall into sin. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 says that their eyes were opened to what it was that they had done. 
I think we, cons- we think of mankind and our fallen nature as people who are spiritually blind. And we are. We're blind now because of the fall to really having just one object of worship, who is God himself. But the reason why Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 tells us that mankind's eyes were opened is be- not because we, we died spiritually in the sense where we're no longer people that worship, but we've died in the sense and our eyes were opened to no longer are we just occupied with the goodness and the glory and the majesty of God as we were beforehand, but now our eyes are open to our own wickedness and the evil and the sin that is now in the world. And because of that, mankind's spiritual nature did not die. We just are now no longer capable of worshiping the one that created us and is worthy of all worship. We now desire, we still desire to worship. It's just now having our eyes open to, the, to sin we worship other things. We go and we turn to other things. And I'm, and I'm reminded of that as I'm hearing the call to prayer. These people spiritually are, in one sense, are very much alive. They just don't know who God is and are not aiming their affections and their worship towards him. Instead, they're worshiping false gods and false idols and religions. That, and then there's no hope in any of those things. And Paul himself, be, one at one point being one of those people who is who is a worshiper of a false god and a false religion, now having his eyes open, his life completely and radically transformed, goes and makes it his mission to make the name and the reality of this one true God who's worthy of worship and praise known so that those who are captivated, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in their sins and transgressions, might now find life in Christ through the gospel. And so I picture Paul and Silas walking into Thessalonica. They're the ones that have the truth. They're the ones that can see rightly. They're the ones that have the, 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 the light of spiritual life. They're the ones that can see things correctly. They're walking into this Jewish synagogue, which is really a temple of of darkness and doom and destruction because there's no hope, there's no gospel, there's no Christ there. And their desire is to preach the gospel, and as they preach, they're praying and hoping that the light of the gospel shines in this place of darkness so that the hearers might hear the word, receive it, and have their eyes open by the working of God to, to now know God and love God and to rightly worship God. Their intent is to take these people who are spiritually blind and turning to other things as, as, as objects of worship so that they might rightly turn to God and worship him appropriately and correctly. And that's what the preaching of the gospel does. You want to, we want to make Christ known. And after he goes and preaches, some respond, and this is his letter in response to them as he's recalling their reception of the gospel. He begins in verse 2, and he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. As Paul's joy for the church is evident, he's thanking God. This is, we had seen this in Romans, how Paul had given thanks for the church in Rome as well because of the working of God there. He doesn't lift himself. He doesn't up. He doesn't magnify his own name. He's not, he's not 
boasting in himself and in his work, but he always acknowledges and attributes the fact that if any true and spiritual change comes about in the life of anybody, it is always and solely done by the sovereign hand of God. And that's the reason why we do missions, and that's the reason why we do men's and, and women's and children and counseling and any other ministry we have, because we go, we're going, look, we know that the only true hope and source of life is in Christ, and that comes through the Word of God. And we, are, we want to get the Word of God out into people's lives so badly that we will, we will do it through all of these different means possible. And so the only reason why any of these ministries exist is because they simply serve as an opportunity for the good news and the truth of God's Word to go out. If any, if any of our ministries ever become begin to exist for any other reason other than it being an opportunity for the Word of God to go out, then we have lost the reality of why they should exist in the first place. And Paul is looking back and he's giving thanks for what it is that God has done, using him, sure, as an instrument, but God being the one that gets the praise and the glory for what it is that has taken place. We always thank God, always, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he acknowledges the work of God in verse 2, and then in verse 3, he's giving a brief overview of the things that he sees coming out of the life of the believers in the church of Thessalonica, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4, he begins to get into the confidence that he has into their work being authentic, their authenticity and the genuineness of their, their work of faith, their labor of love and steadfastness of hope. And so he says in verse 4, For or because we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How can Paul be sure that they have been chosen, that they have truly been elected by God for salvation? Passages like this, you know, really caused me to think about, you know, we say the motto, well, you never really know, you never know if someone's really saved. And, and, I, and I know what we mean when we say that. There's no way, you know, we're not in the position of God. We can't tr see really the, the true spiritual nature of somebody, whether or not they're really regenerated. But Paul clearly says in verse 4, for we know, brothers loved by you, that he has chosen you. He is confident in the electing work and grace of God. He is confident that he has chosen those believers in Thessalonica for a reason, actually for four reasons that we see here in the text. And he's confident that he knows that God has chosen them because of what it is that he sees in their lives. The light of spiritual life and the people that come to know Christ in a true and genuine way, begin to give off the light of Christ. And it begins to become evident who they are. 
especially painted against the backdrop of the presence of darkness and sin that is in the world. Because of the entrance of sin into the world, things have become incredibly dark and bleak for mankind, to say the least. Believers are ones who have been given the life of Christ. And we should shine like lights brightly in this world, especially against the dark backdrop of the presence of sin. And I think, and that's part of the reason why Paul is able to be confident in the electing work of God and the, the, the fact that they've been chosen to life, to, to true spiritual life, because of the way that they live their lives. Paul is encouraged and assured of their salvation because God has chosen them, and then he lists four reasons for us to consider this morning that he mentions in verses four and five as to how he believes and knows that that is true. And the first one is we see in verse five, because our gospel came to you not only in word. He makes four very clear, distinct things that he mentions about the the church in Thessalonica that I think are good for us to consider for us. The first is the word of God. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, number one, but also in power, number two, and in the Holy Spirit, number three, and with full conviction, number four. And we want to look at all four of those things and really consider and evaluate. Is that how we evaluate true Christian spirituality? Or do we use some other form of evaluation on whether or not we believe someone's truly regenerated or chosen by God? So the first one being the Word of God. We know that He has chosen you because our, co- our gospel came to you in Word. Salvation is a product of the preaching of the Word of God. Paul would make that very clear. Eventually, we'll get there in the book of Romans. But he would say in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17, as he brings to bear the importance and the centrality of the Word of God in its role in salvation. He'll say in verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is Romans 10. How then will they call on him, right? If everybody who calls on the name of the Lord is to be saved, then he begins a a set of questions. Well, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul makes it very, very clear there and in other places in Scripture that the preaching of the word of God is absolutely central 
to salvation. He is confident that God has chosen them. Why? Because he got an opportunity to preach the gospel. Because he got an opportunity to preach the word of God. And any time the word of God is preached, any time the gospel is shared, there is potential for God to save the sinner. That is why for the Christian, we never stray from the truth of the gospel. When we're sharing the word of God with others, and we're sharing the gospel with them. What did, we, what did Craig preach on last week? Romans 1.16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power unto salvation for those who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in it a righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That the gift of faith comes from and it springs out of the gospel message and that the gospel is what we see and find in the word of God and so therefore the believer's life is always about sharing the truth of God's word and anytime we share the truth of God's word there is always this wonderful potential and encouragement for God to use the folly of what is preached to save the sinner But that means that the Word of God has to be central to what we share. How many forms of evangelism do you know, can you think of, just off the top of your head, where the Word of God is either completely removed from evangelism or just kind of like set off to the side? And if you get to it, then good. That's really good. If you get to this talking about this man, Jesus, as you're sharing the gospel, that's, you know, that's kind of a good thing. But if you don't, don't worry about it. It's really more about your own story and your own narrative of what God has done in your life. Surely we testify to what God has done. But if you're only talking about what God has done and you're never talking about and preaching about the one that has done it, specifically Christ, and calling for a response, then we're really not preaching the biblical gospel. Because when you go back to Acts 17 and you see what Paul did there as he preached the gospel, he's explaining and convincing that Jesus is the Christ. And what's more, I think even more incredible than that is that as he goes off to Berea, And he preaches the gospel there. It says that many of them um, believed, but those who were in Berea were more noble than them, and they were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I mean, you think about it. The Apostle Paul, they have the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel. And you know what's more important than the words of the Apostle Paul to them? The word of God. They're saying, okay, we're hearing what you're saying, but do you know where our source of authority is? It's not in your words, and it's not in what you're saying and proclaiming. Our source of authority is the truth of God's word. And if what you're saying agrees with this, then you can stay. But if what you're saying does not agree with this, then you can keep moving, buddy. And for the Christian today, I'm wondering, Does the word of God really play that prominent of a role in our lives? 
And I think you could probably answer that question very easily by just considering how often you spend time reading the Word of God. I mean, you'll know. You know, we can say that I love the Bible, I love the Word. Okay, well, let's talk about how much time you spend reading it and studying it and enjoying it. That's a real quick litmus test as to how central the Word of God is in your life. Paul's confident that they have been chosen by God because the Word has come to them in power. Paul would say in 2 Timothy 3.15 that the Scriptures are, are wise to, our scriptures make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. For him, the word of God was central. Not only did the, we see that he is confident that they have been chosen by God because the gospel came to them in word, but also in power. Power being the capability and the ability to perform that which is acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. It's the, it's the genuineness of really living out the life that God calls us to live. Not temporarily, not for today, not for tomorrow. But the power that the Word of God has to really change people and sanctify them. I mean, this is essentially what me and Sam have been teaching and talking about for the past two weeks. Does the Word of God really have the power to change us? And the Word of God talks about being a new creation in Christ be given a, a completely new nature, a new identity. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not struggling with our old self and, and ways. But Paul is convinced of the genuineness, the, authentic, the authenticity of their faith, of their conversion, because of the power that he sees working in their lives, that, has, that, that the Word of God went out and gripped their hearts with the love for Christ that actually began to bring about real and practical and tangible change in who they were. Like, to get somebody to change the entire trajectory of their lives can only come about by the powerful working of God. You know, we in our sinfulness, we have our hopes and our dreams and the trajectory of our lives set upon certain things of this world. And, and really the only way that true change comes about and why people are able to let go their hopes and dreams of, of things of this world, are able to, the only way that that happens is by the word of God in power really gripping them and taking a hold of them and setting them off on a completely new direction for how they're gonna live. And for people to really be transformed to be like Christ. For the word of God to come in power means to be changed in the inner man, not just 
changed by the actions that we do and the things like that, but to be changed in our attitudes, our motives, our desires. That's where the real power is. The real power is not in just changing our actions. The real power is in changing our affections. The power to comprehend what God has done, what he's able to do, how he brings me to actually delight in him, to trust in him, and to love him having a heart that's now alive in Christ, desiring to behold his glory and to search after it and pursue what brings him glory and what's going to help advance his kingdom. What's amazing about the gospel is the Christian's ability to once again be satisfied with God's beauty and glory while there are other competing beauties and glories around us. I mean, my, our eyes have been opened to, sinful, to sin and wickedness and to, and to once again be able to have my eyes fixed upon him and his goodness and his glory and to be satisfied in him when all these other competing idols and objects of worship are around only really comes about by the power of the working of God. Why would I want to say no to anything other than God when in some part of me is convinced that they are actually good for me and I will enjoy them, right? I mean, this is what happens every, at the, every single moment that we face temptation. There are, a, there are competing objects of worship. And the only reason why I would say no to this other object of worship is because I have found a greater object, a more satisfying object of worship in God. And the only reason why I see that and want that and desire that is because of the power of God working in my life that keeps me wanting and pursuing him over other things. I mean, if we're being honest, there are, uh, there are competing objects of worship in this world that we find very desirous and attractive. And we are oftentimes, right, we sing Come thou fount, right? I'm prone to wander and prone to leading the God that I love because the other things of this world, they still have a draw. They still have an attraction to me. But how is it that I can look upon that thing with all of its temptation, all of its lure, all of its desire, the way that it sparkles and shines and not give in to it, but to actually say, no, that is not what I really want, what I truly want, is the glory of God and to pursue him and to live a life of faith, not by sight. The only way that that comes about is because the power of God is at work within me to produce in me that which at times I just don't want produced and I cannot do myself. I am just so thankful for the faithfulness and the consistency of God to keep me and to preserve me and helping me set my eyes upon him and the greater glory. And that's the power of God, and that's what Paul sees working in them, and that's what should be working in us. I'm reminded of what we see written in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. How is it that we are actually able to say and agree with what we read 
in Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Really? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I mean, who among us could honestly say that? Who do I have in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That only comes about by the power and the working of God in our lives. Not only is Paul confident in that God has chosen them because the word has come to them, because the power is of God is being worked out and displayed in their lives, but also because of the working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who uses the word of God to regenerate us. The Holy Spirit is the one who is powerfully working within us as well. He not only saves us, but he continues to sanctify us. And I found it interesting as I was reading through the entire book of 1 Thessalonians that the Holy Spirit's working and activity is mentioned specifically in two ways. He'll say one of the, he'll actually reveal one of those in verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then he mentions it again, the working of the Holy Spirit in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, when he talks about the fact that God has called us for, not for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives you, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul is confident that God has chosen them to salvation because of the working of the Holy Spirit. And in the rest of the book of 1 Thessalonians, he mentions the working of the Holy Spirit in two ways. One, that they're able to endure affliction with joy. And second, that they have a desire to grow in holiness. And I, th I was thinking about those two things in particular and the relationship of those two things. The fact that the fact that they actually have a desire to grow in holiness and to be like Christ, even in the midst of suffering and trials and afflictions. I mean, it's 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 hard to want to grow in holiness as it is. It's it's even more difficult and abnormal if you will, to want to grow in holiness when your life is falling apart around you. And the church in Thessalonica is facing incredible pressure and suffering because of trials and persecution by the non-believers in their city. And not only are they able just to survive and get by in the midst of persecution, but they're, they're not just surviving, they're thriving. Like they're bearing fruit, and they actually are able to endure affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That the presence of affliction, the presence of trials, and the presence of hardship in their life doesn't make them more depressed, doesn't make them more sad, doesn't make them more angry, and doesn't make them more discouraged like it usually so easily it does for many of us. 
the presence of hardship and affliction for them is actually a, a fountain of their joy in the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God, when everything around you is being taken away and you're experiencing loss of whatever kind, we're so easy, we're so easily tempted for our joy to decrease when the things of this world that we find joy go away. But what God does so wonderfully so often in those midst is not that we lose our joy because those things are going away, but rather our joy is refunneled back into him and we remember and rejoice in what can never be taken away from us. And that's the life that we have in Christ. I mean, that's part of the reason why Martin Luther said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Believers have always gone through loss. The church will always suffer persecution and trial and affliction. And yet what God supplies is the ability to not just survive, but to thrive and to bear fruit in the midst of hardship. Corporately for us and individually as well. And not only to to thrive and to have joy, but to actually want to be like Christ. Where now the definition of the good life is that I might be more like Christ. One of the things that I'll always ask people when they come in for counseling is I'll say, give me a definition of your idea of the good life. What is, if you were to imagine and to define and describe what the good life is for you, what would that look like? You know what I very rarely ever hear? I define the good life as being made like the Lord Jesus Christ. But for believers, that's what our definition of the good life should be. As long as I'm made more like Jesus, life is good. And if we can see things that way, then we can see all things in life as being good. Because God is always in the work of making us more like Christ through Oftentimes, our trials and our hardships, the very things that we don't enjoy, the very things that we don't want in our lives in the midst of hardship and trials are the very things that God is using to make us more like him. And so why do we pray, God, remove this, remove this, remove this? Instead, why don't we pray, God, help me to see your purposes in this and help me to see this as being an expression of your love and goodness to me to make me more like Christ. And so Paul mentions that he's confident of their, God has chosen them because of the the word, because of the power, and because of the Holy Spirit, and lastly, with full conviction. Maybe a different way to be able to look at this word conviction is assurance. It's mentioned three other times in Scripture, Colossians 2.2, Hebrews 6.11, and Hebrews 10 verse 22, and in all of those passages, it's translated as assurance. Consider Hebrews chapter 
10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Speaking about the assurance of our faith that we have in Christ and our ability to come to Christ. He knows, Paul's, Paul is sure that God has chosen them because of the assurance that they have. The assurance that the gospel offers that has empowered this church to persevere, to thrive and to bear fruit, even in the midst of suffering, and that calls them and enables them and helps them to obedience to God. You think about how central assurance is to, to our obedience. I mean, I, if when, I, when, I, when I'm thinking rightly, biblically, clearly in that way, and I'm assured that God is good, and I'm assured of my position in Christ, my life in Him, I'm assured that He knows best, that I am much more likely to be obedient to him and to walk in his ways because I know and trust that he is for my good and, and obedience to him and working in him assures me that I am being made more like him. Every step of obedience and the assurance of that obedience is a confidence that he knows what is best and that in, in walking in obedience to him, I am pleasing him and I'm actually doing that which is best for me as well. And so they have this assurance, this steadfastness, this conviction to live in a particular way even in the midst of hardship. People that have endured tremendous difficulty and suffering and yet have still been, have clung to Christ through the midst of those difficulties become a tremendous source of encouragement and help to us. And oftentimes, the reason why they're able to be obedient is because of the, the assurance that they have in the gospel. Assurance and steadfast conviction in him frees us to live for him. I thought of the words, the song that we will often sing, Blessed Assurance. I think these words present it well Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. I think those words describe very, very well the yielding and the submission and the, the peace that comes in the assurance that Christ offers to us. Watching and waiting, looking above, as I'm filled with his goodness and I'm lost in his love. Not lost in the things of this world and in this life. What's on the TV and what's on the news and what's going on in politics and what's going on on Wall Street and all of these other things that we can become lost in. No, the believer's assurance comes from God and being secure and fixed in Christ and therefore our eyes are always brought up and set upon him as we eagerly anticipate, anticipate and wait for his wonderful and glorious return. 
and we're filled with confidence and peace and assurance in him as we do so. So Paul has mentioned four things, four reasons why he is sure that God has chosen them. Because the word of God has come to them, because the power of the Spirit is at work in them, because the Holy Spirit himself has come to them and helping them, and that they have full assurance and conviction in what it is that they have believed. And then lastly, he mentions, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Nothing that they saw in Paul contradicted the message that he preached to them. I got to tell you, working with our brother in Christ over in Ethiopia, Cabrou, I can't tell you how many times I heard the other people in the ministry talk about how the way that he lived his life really impacted their desire um, to be in ministry and their ability to really persevere at times in difficulty in ministry as well. The fact that he, so many of them would say, you know, I can't tell you how wonderful an example Cabrou is to us, how strong his faith is, how he, how he lives out what he believes. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a man, imperfect, but this is a man that has been gripped by the truth of God's word and has actually committed and set his life to bring an honor and glory to God. And the way that that has permeated and affected those in, around him is obvious. And Paul would say, you in verse 6, and you became, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, because what they saw in Cabrou's life was not necessarily him, but Christ. And I'm thinking to myself, that is like, that's the best compliment a Christian could ever have. Is that when I look at you and I see you, I see the love of Christ and the working of Christ through you. And, and, and I think that that is something that every believer should pray for and want for their lives. That what God would see in us is not us, but they would see Christ in us. And that, that you know what that does? It draws people. Because Believers love Christ, and they want to know Christ more. And if you're exuding Christ-likeness out of you, then people will want to be with you so that they can um, grow to be more like him in God's working through you. And so it should really cause us to think about and take seriously, how much do I really want to grow and to be like Christ? Christ-likeness can really affect the effectiveness and a fruitfulness of our ministries. So a couple things that I was considering and I, as we close, would ask you guys to consider as well. Number one, do we evaluate salvation along the same lines as Paul does? The, based upon the word of God, the power of God, the spirit of God, and the assurance of God. Are these the things that we are looking for as signs of spiritual life in our own lives and in the lives of those who are around us? 
people really exhibiting the fruit and the light of spiritual life? Or is it just based upon their own testimony of, oh yeah, I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, oh yeah, I love Jesus. Is, 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 like, is the living coming, like is it anywhere close <laughs> to, the, to the profession of faith? Is there really, you know, there should be a light of Christ that exudes from those who have true spiritual life. And do I show and display the light of that life, the, the light of Christ in my own life? How much of what people hear and see from me is actually hearing and seeing from Christ and not myself? I think those things are good for us to consider as we prepare to come to the table together today during our time of communion. A time of communion is, you know, something that we do weekly as a privilege for us as believers to gather together and corporately and partake of this meal together. Um, it draws our eyes specifically to the person and the work of Christ. It's helpful for us to evaluate if whether or not our spiritual life is truly found in Christ or based upon our own thoughts, ideas, efforts, merits. It's so humbling to come to the table because we were, we're reminded that we have nothing to contribute to our salvation and it's based solely upon the work of Christ. And so if you're a believer and you're here and you're visiting with us today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, you've heard the word of the gospel, the power of God is at work within you, you've been regenerated by the working of the Spirit and you have assurance in that you're saved by the work of Christ and by Christ alone, then we, we invite you to partake of the table with us. But if you are thinking that you're made right with God, that you have salvation through any other means, then we would ask you to not, not partake of communion, but to consider what it is that we've said today and how we've spoken about life being found only in Christ. Christ.